Hello, welcome to episode 2 of the Cop Ball Watching Podcast. My name is Jerry Johnson and I'm your host. In this episode, I'm going to read out an article that I um, I put together. It was just before Christmas I'd done it. Um, so the idea behind doing this in this episode was people seem to like in this day and age, some people like audiobooks and stuff. So I thought I would try and mix it, mix it up a bit with um, articles that I've wrote, put them on the podcast, so I don't know whether it's many other people do that or not, but um, you could call it whatever you like, it could be like an audio cast or a pod book or whatever, you know, um, but in this, uh, this is basically uh, one of my longer uh, longer articles that I've wrote. So this particular article um, is about the legendary Bela Gutman. Uh, he was a Hungarian and he managed Benfica, um, among others. He managed a lot of teams, um, played for a lot of teams. He was much travelled. Um, very interesting story. So the article I wrote, I published it, I believe, on Christmas Eve, 24th of December. Yeah, 24th of December, 2018. And the article was titled, The Gift and Curse of Bella Gutman. So uh, you can sit back, relax and have a listen about the uh, the legendary story that was uh, that was Bella Gutman. Throughout life, most of us would be happy to have one great achievement during our time on Earth. Sadly, a lot of us will never do anything truly remarkable, but some people, perhaps one or two per generation, live lives that seem like they have achieved and done more things than 20 different people. Bella Gutman was such a person. Gutman had a long list of achievements across his 82 years. Not only did he achieve success, but he also left lasting legacies wherever he went. He wasn't one for sticking around in one place for too long, and had a bit of a nomadic existence, which is perhaps an indication of why his name isn't quite as well known as it should be. But pretty much everywhere he went, he left something behind and also learned something new for the next chapter of his life. Gutmann was born in the last year of the 19th century in Budapest, which at the time was a part of Austria-Hungary. Despite being Hungarian, he didn't spend the majority of his life in his home country. Even in his formative years, his parents were part of a dance troupe, so touring and being on the move would have been normal for him. There was also the fact that the turbulent political climate following the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire meant a period of uncertainty in the nation of his birth, and as a Jew, he was often the victim of anti-Semitism. With both of his parents being dancers, it looked like a young Gutman would follow in their footsteps, but his true passion was football, and he decided that it would be the path he would follow in search of a career. His dancing pedigree had an impact on his career though, and it is often cited as a reason behind his athleticism, as he launched a career as a ball-playing centre-back, many years before the term was fashionable. Coincidentally, another ball-playing centre-back would also speak of his dancing background as a reason for success in the football pitch many years later. Rio Ferdinand, most famously of Manchester United in England, studied ballet as a youngster and has often spoken of how it helped him in his career as a footballer. Gutmann's playing career began in the youth team of Torekves SE before he moved to MTK Hungary. He won two Hungarian titles with MTK before moving to Hakoa VN to try to escape the anti-Semitism that was rife in Hungary at the time. His former MTK did win him international recognition, but he only appeared six times for Hungary, and only four of those were in recognised internationals. This included the 1924 Olympics, 
when he fell foul of the officials as he believed they favoured socialising over preparation and he ended up hanging dead rats in their doors by way of protest. Hakoil was a Jewish club based in Vienna and they were considered to be one of the great teams of the era. Gutmann added an Austrian league title whilst with the club but it was more for the tours that the team went on that they were remembered. Hakoil became the first foreign team to beat an English club in England when they destroyed West Ham United 5-1. It was on one of these tours that opened the next door for Gutmann. The team were on tour in the USA and the defender was so impressed that he decided not to go home. Between 1926 and 1932, Gutmann played for five clubs in the New York area. He won a National Challenge Cup with New York Hakoa in 1929, but his time in America is perhaps more noted for success and failure off the field. During Gutmann's time in the United States, alcohol was banned. This was the Prohibition era, and Gutmann invested his money in a speakeasy. A speakeasy was essentially an illegal drinking den and Gutmann's was among the most popular around. He was regularly rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous of the time with many movie stars spending time in his company. However, as easily as the money had come, it was gone again. The Wall Street crash of 1929 took his fortune and it's believed that he lost in the region of $500,000 which would equate to around $5 million today. He did stick around in America for another few years after losing his fortune, but he returned to Europe in 1932 with Hakoa VN before retiring as a player in 1933. His playing career wasn't great, but it was at the very least a reasonable career that gave him a good grounding and laid the foundations for an even longer and further travelled career in coaching. Gutmann's coaching career began at a club he was familiar with. In fact, he had two stints in charge of Hakoa VN before World War II. He failed to win any or honours with Hakoa, but between his two spells in Vienna, he almost completed a miracle turnaround in the Netherlands that almost led to his team being made bankrupt. He took over in Schende, now known as FC20, in 1935 with the team in a relegation battle. In his contract, he negotiated a huge bonus if he won the league, which seemed like a safe bet for the board, but he managed to keep them up before setting off on a title charge in his second season. In the end, he didn't win the title, but he went close and the chairman was able to breathe a sigh of relief as the club weren't in the position to pay the bonus. Just before World War II broke out, Gutmann moved back to Hungary with Uzpest. He won a league title and the Matropa Cup, which was an international tournament contested by clubs from Southeast Europe. However, World War II broke out soon after and Gutmann, like many other Jews in Europe, went off the radar for a time. It is now known that he spent most of those years hiding in an attic in Uzpest. Paul Moldovan, who later became his brother-in-law, helped him hide, but he was eventually found and sent to a forced labour camp. Days before he was due to leave for Auschwitz, where he would have undoubtedly been murdered, he escaped from the camp by jumping out a window. While Gutmann managed to make it through the war, many of his friends and family did not, and his father and sister were among those who died in Auschwitz. Once the war ended, Gutmann got back to work and had a spell with Fasas before moving to Romania with a team in Bucharest. The most remarkable thing about his time in Romania was that he negotiated payment in vegetables. Food was scarce in post-war Europe, so he made sure he was in a position to look after himself and his family by getting food on the table. His time in Romania was cut short when the board tried to get involved in team selection and Gutmann, who was never one to suffer fools, simply walked away. 
Perhaps feeling that there was unfinished business with Utrecht, having his first spell interrupted by the war, he returned to the club in 1947 and continued where he left off by adding another league title to his collection. Again it was a short stay and he moved on to Kijpest, who would later become the great Honved team. He took over from Ferenc Puskas Sr, but it was Puskas Jr who he had trouble with. In one game he was angry at the performance of Miheli Pache and decided that the player should spend the second half in the dressing room. Puskas Jr took exception and told Pache to disobey the order. In response, Gutman simply went home and didn't return to work. As always, it wouldn't be long before Gutman was back in employment, and the following year, he found work in Italy for the first time. He had time with Padova and Tristiana in Italy before moving to South America with Argentine side Kilmes for a short spell in 1953. He had another equally short stint in Cyprus with Apoel before landing the AC Milan job. At this time, AC Milan had some fantastic players with Gunnar Nordahl, Nils Ledholm and Juan Alberto Schiaffino among the names that he coached. All three are in the AC Milan Hall of Fame with Nordahl still holding the record for the club's all-time top goalscorer. In typical fashion, Gutmann's time at the San Siro ended in controversy. He had led the team to the top of Serie A, but he was at odds with the board and was relieved of his duties after one dispute too many. Gutman was understandably annoyed to be sacked, for the re- sacked and for the rest of his career he always pushed for a clause in his contract that he could not be sacked while his team sat top of the league. There was also a sad event during his time in Milan where he was believed to be involved in a hit and run incident with a Hungarian businessman that led to the deaths of two children. Gutman stayed in Italy after leaving Milan and took over at Vicenza before going home in 1956 for another stint in charge of Kispest, who were by this time known as Honved. This Honved team was one of the all-time great sides, but they broke up soon after in 1957. The political climate in Hungary was as unstable as ever, and while they were away playing a European Cup match in Bilbao against the Athletic, the Hungarian Revolution was squashed by the Soviet Union, and the players refused to return to Budapest under Soviet rule. The second leg of the game against Athletic still had to be played and it was agreed that it would take place at the Heysel Stadium in Belgium. Athletic had won 3-2 in their home leg and managed to draw 3-3 in Belgium to eliminate Honved 6-5 in aggregate. With no European Cup to play for and not wishing to return to Budapest, the players sent for their families and embarked on a tour of Europe and South America. They played matches in Italy, Spain and Portugal before going to Brazil to participate in a tournament. Shortly after, they were banned by FIFA and the team went its separate ways, with Gutmann staying in Brazil to manage Sao Paulo. In typical fashion, it was a short stay in Brazil, but as always he made his mark. He won a Sao Paulo state championship, but his impact was much bigger than that. Gutmann had long since been an advocate of the 4-2-4 formation, with a focus on wingers and one of the midfielders sitting deep to support the defence and allow the fullbacks to get forward. He popularised this formation in Brazil and before long it became the go-to style and was used to perfection by Vicente Fuela, who coached Brazil to their first World Cup win in 1958. Not only had Gutmann provided the tactical blueprint for Brazil's success, but he's also believed to have provided the Brazilians with a lot of information on the European teams they would play in Sweden. After leaving Brazil in 1958, Gutmann made his first move to Portugal when he took over FC Porto. He won a league title in his only season with the club before moving to their rivals Benfica. 
The Benfica board must have wondered what they had done when, when Gutman arrived and promptly dismissed 20 members of the first team squad, instead promoting a number of players from within the club. Gutman was never afraid to make big decisions and clearly felt the players at the club wouldn't suit what he wanted to do, so felt it would be easier to take the younger players who may be easier to mould into his ideology. The turnaround in players didn't do them any harm and he began his time in Lisbon with a league title which allowed Benfica entrance to the European Cup, which is where Gutman would really make his mark. Hearts, Uspest Dosia, AGF Aarhus and Rapid Vienne were all dispatched relatively comfortably, which meant they would take on Spanish giants Barcelona and Bern, Switzerland in the final. Until this time, only Real Madrid had won the European Cup, but Barca had knocked out their big rivals in the early rounds, so the world felt that they would be the next European champions, but Gutman wasn't having that. He led his side to a famous 3-2 victory to become the second club to win the European Cup after the early Real Madrid dominance. A few months prior to that final, Gutman had one of his greatest moments in terms of uncovering talents, but it wasn't without luck. He had met an old colleague in a Lisbon barbershop. José Carlos Bauer was a former Brazilian international and was now coaching a Brazilian side. His team were on a tour of Portugal and were set to travel to Africa next. In those days, Benfica didn't sign foreign players and relied purely on Portuguese players, so Gutman asked if he could keep an eye out for any talented players in Africa's Portuguese colonies. It was a bit of a throwaway comment with neither really expecting much to come of it, but the world of football can be a funny place at times, and it seemed the stars were aligning in a particular way that would see Benfica's greatest ever player fall into their lap. A short time later, Gutman and Bayer were reunited in the same barbers, and Gutman inquired as to whether the older man had found a new star. Oddly, there was a player that Bayer had discovered, and luckily he was from Mozambique, which at the time was a Portuguese territory. Bayer explained that he had tried to sign a player by the name of Eusebio, but he had been priced out of the deal. After learning that the player was playing for Sporting de Lorenca Marquez, he knew he had to act fast as the Sporting of Mozambique was an affiliate of Sporting in Portugal and they would soon sign him up unless Benfica could sneak in to steal the player from under their noses. Gutman got the deal done, much to the fury of Sporting who offered Eusebio 500,000 escudos to rip up the deal and sign for Sporting, but the player was too wise to sign a second contract and refused the deal. Gutman was still wary though, and sent the youngster to the Algarve to stay in a Benfica-owned house where he'd be looked after by three bodyguards. Soon enough, the deal was all sorted, and although he was ineligible for European competition, Eusebio made his mark in the league, and a number of high-profile friendlies, including one against Pele and his Santos team. With the second league title and the European Cup secured in 1961, the next challenge now was to defend them. It wasn't to be in the league, as Sporting and Porto both finished above Benfica. They did win the tackle to Portugal, but it was in Europe and that once again Gutman made his, his mark. He had a degree in psychology and he had to use it many years before the likes of Alex Ferguson made football mind games fashionable. Austria, Vienna and Nuremberg were dispatched comfortably in the earlier rounds, which meant Benfica would take on English double winners, Tottenham Hotspurs in the semi-finals. Gutman knew Spurs were a good side and used all the tricks he had to overcome them. In the first game in Lisbon, he kept his players in the dressing room while Spurs were out receiving a not-so-warm welcome from the locals. It seemed to work as Benfica scored two early goals on their way to a 3-1 win, but it was in the, ahead of the second leg at White Hart Lane that Gutman really came into his own. 
Gutman was a little afraid that the English side would be too physical for his stars and simply blow them away in front of their own fans. He was able to use all of experience in his degree in psychology to, to perhaps sway the Danish referee when he spent most of his press conference before the match talking about how he expected a real war and wondered if the referee was experienced enough to keep a lid on things. Naturally, word got back to the referee and it seemed to work wonders as all reports suggest that any time there was any contact on a Benfica player, the whistle went and it was a free kick to the Portuguese side. Gutman was wise enough not to let Spurs repeat the trick that he had used on them in Lisbon and once again locked his dressing room door and only opened it on the referee's insistence. This meant his players marched out onto the pitch, straight into the kick-off and Judy took the lead after 15 minutes. It would be all one-way traffic after that as wave after wave of Spurs pressure came at Benfica but Costa Pereira was superb in the away goal as Spurs won 2-1 which meant Benfica would progress to the final, 4-3 on aggregate. With one peak successfully overcoming Spurs, it would be time to reach the summit of the biggest peak in Europe in the shape of Real Madrid on the fi- in the final. Real had still only ever lost one tie in European football to the Barcelona team that Benfica had defeated in the 1961 final, and players like Frank Puskas and Alfredo Di Stefano were still at the club despite both being in their mid-30s. It was the fact that they were older that gave Gutman the ammunition for his latest piece of mind games and this time it would be his own team that would be on the receiving end of it. From the moment the finalists were known, Gutman made a point to speak positively about his team's chances in the final. Perhaps he sensed that as a young team, most of whom had come out of the youth team only three years earlier, would be overawed by the great Real Madrid stars who were known as the best around at the time. He made sure to install a sense of positivity around their chances and then held back his ace card for the moments just before the game, when he delivered one of the most intelligent team talks in football history. Gutman took his team back to when he had gone to the 1924 Olympics with Hungary, and spoke about meeting the legendary 5,000 metre runner Poavo Nurmi of Finland. Nurmi had won the 5,000 metres in an Olympic record time of 14 minutes and 31 seconds. He had already broken the world record previously in the same year, and at the time many people thought he was some kind of superhuman. Gutman then fast forwarded up to the 1960 Olympics when Murray Halberg of New Zealand won the 5000 metres in a time of 13 minutes and 43 seconds which made Nurmi's time look pedestrian. Gutman's point was that Di Stefano, Puskas and Real Madrid were Nurmi and that his youngsters were Halberg and that time stands still for nobody and that Benfica were younger and fitter so would win. He also pointed out that Real would tire in the second half, so all they needed to do was to keep within two goals and they would retain their title. The players must have been hoping and praying that he knew what he was talking about, as Puskas needed a first half hat trick, but fortunately Benfica had grabbed two goals themselves. With the deficit at one, Gutman spent much of half time telling his team in broken Portuguese that Real were done. De Stefano and Puskas were old and dead and that his team would win. He also made a tactical switch by putting his best man marker, Domiciano Cavem, on Puskas and the second half was all Benfica. They managed to score three goals themselves, two of which came from the great Eusebio and ran out 5-3 winners to prove themselves as the new kings of Europe by dethroning the previous champions. With so many youngsters and back-to-back European Cups in the bank, you would think this would be the beginning of something special for Benfica and Gutman, but in actual fact it was the end. The relationship between manager and board had become difficult. 
Gutman was upset that the club sent him an invoice for half of a hotel bill from when his wife had joined him for the European Cup match in Nuremberg. He had also asked for a substantial pay raise should he defend the European Cup, but the board weren't forthcoming and Gutman decided it was time to move on. Typical of the man, he wouldn't leave quietly and to this day his departure still haunts the club. The popular story is that Gutman put a curse on his former employers by saying that not in a hundred years from now will Benfica ever be European champion. To be fair since he said that, they haven't. They lost European Cup finals in 1963, 1965, 1968, 1988 and 1990, as well as losing UEFA Cup or Europa League finals in 1983, 2013 and 2014. The reality is, his actual words were, in the next 100 years, no Portuguese team will win two European titles and Benfica will never be champions of Europe without me. It still makes grim reading for Benfica, but since he said it, Porto have won two European Cups and two UEFA Cup or Europa Leagues, so it seems there is no curse, but with his degree in psychology, Gutman would know better than most how the belief that there is a curse could infect Benfica when they reached European finals. Benfica did try to make a late play to keep Gutman, but by this time his decision was made, and he wasn't the kind of man to go back on his word. He had an opportunity to go to England for what is thought to be the only time in his career, when Port Vale made a move to try to sign him, but instead he decided to leave Europe behind completely, almost like some kind of conquering hero who had completed it with his two European Cup wins. Instead of the potteries with Port Vale, Gutman decided it would be Penarol of Montevideo, Uruguay instead. It would be a short stint, but it was long enough to gain some credit for another trophy as Penarol won the league, although Gutman had left before the trophy was won. That would prove to be the last hurrah for Gutman, as his career came to a close with spells at Austria, back at Benfica, Serviette, Panathinaikos, Austria Vienne, and his final job being a short spell with FC Porto in 1973. In retirement he moved to Vienna and it would be there that he would die and be buried in 1981 at the age of 82 years old. Despite Gutman passing away, Benfica never gave up an end in the curse and when they went to Vienna in 1990 to play AC Milan in the European Cup final, Eusebio went to his former manager's grave to pray that the curse be lifted, but it didn't work as Frank Reichard scored the only goal of the game to hand the cup to Milan. Another club who had once felt the wrath of Bella Gutman after his shock sack in the 1955. Over the years, Bella Gutman made a huge mark in the game of football. He had more of an influence than most, yet his reputation lags somewhat behind many who didn't achieve a fraction of what he did. Perhaps it's because he didn't coach anyone in England, Germany, France or Spain, who are some of the biggest markets in the game. Another reason may be the fact that he was on the move so much, but for me... That's just another example of how far ahead of his time he was. We often hear about the third season syndrome in modern football, with Jose Mourinho probably the most famous sufferer in the modern era. However, Gutman was talking about it decades ago, and famously said the third season is fatal, when asked about why he is so often on the move. At three seasons, Benfica was his longest stint at a club, and in the end, it did prove to be fatal. Gutman may not be that well known, but he absolutely should be. The man was a pioneer of the game. He was a part of a group of great Hungarian thinkers who changed the game in the 1930s and 40s, before going out and spreading the revolutionary ideas around the world. Gutman preferred the 4-2-4 formation, but he never stood still and as the game moved on, so did he.
and he was always open to new ideas if it meant he could take something from it to improve himself and his teams. That kind of attitude was way beyond his time and while many fell behind the times, Gutman was able to carve out a 40 year coaching career that saw him move around the world and influence millions of people and fans along the way. What people will most remember of Gutman is that he was a subject of a curse that has been carved to suit an agenda over the last 50 plus years which is really quite sad as instead his true legacy should be as one of the best sporting influencers of his generation. So that was the story of the legendary Bella Gutman. If you enjoyed this episode let me know. Um, I held a, a vote on Twitter about the possibility of reading some of these uh, older articles that I, I wrote out and it was quite a close vote but just the majority of people says that I should give it a go so I'm interested to see what people think of it whether it's something that they're interested or whether they prefer conversations with with different football fans, football journalists, etc. But uh, there will obviously be plenty more like that. I'm hoping, uh, hopefully in our, our next couple of episodes, there will be uh, some talk about certainly the European Cup final. Um, if we can get uh, a few people on board, we'll look to do the Europa League final as well. But there's still plenty to come, plenty of ideas, and hopefully you've enjoyed the podcast so far. And... Uh, Obviously, it would be much appreciated if you could like it, share it, um, let your friends know, let people know about it, and uh, help me help me increase the, the traffic in it and uh, allow the the podcast to grow. So that's it for this episode. But I should be back in the next couple of days, and uh, we'll be looking ahead to the European finals with uh, all the English sides involved next week, which will obviously be something historical for fans of the Premier League and and fans of football. So until then, thanks for listening. Goodbye.